but if you would like to follow along, uh, page 370 in your pew Bibles, the ones in front of you, uh, we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1 to 37. Two Kings four one to thirty seven. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creator is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me what to do. What, what, do, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There's no jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. One day Elisha went to to Shumen, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he passed by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put him in a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant, Gehazi, call the the Shimonite woman. So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her? Elisha asked. Gehazi said, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her. And she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. But the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew. And one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers, He said to his father, my head, my head. His father told a servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today? he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. That's all right, she said. She saddled a donkey and said to her servant, lead on, 
Don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shimonite. Run to her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said. Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone you meet. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and, and, and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound of response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy has not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got onto the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shamamite. And he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. Let's pray for Clive as he comes to to speak about this particular story. Father, we thank you um, for the message that you've been preparing in Clive's heart, uh, particularly about this quite challenging story, um, and pray that, that you will use him to speak to us this morning and help us hear what it is you have to say. No matter how confusing we may find this story, that we'll be open to hearing what it is he has to say that you've placed on his heart. In your name, amen. amen. Thank you, Ross. Can I just ask you all a question before I start this morning? Uh, if you just want to stick a hand up in the air so I get a kind of sense. How many people have never seen a baptism by immersion before? Anyone? Anyone never seen that? So, yeah, okay, we've got some people. Strange, isn't it? It's a strange thing to kind of witness. Uh, my wife and I, uh, I had been a, a, an atheist, as most people here now know very clearly, for the first 32 years of my life. Then I came to have this encounter with Jesus. So it was very unlike our three young men this morning who gave this glowing testimony of seeing God's life in the lives of their parents and family uh, and how that had impacted them. And they were raised in that faith. That wasn't true for me. I got baptized in the North Sea uh, with my wife on our wedding anniversary on September the 24th, a very long time ago. And uh, it, there are breakers in the North Sea around the coastland there, near the pier of Scarborough, where we were baptized. And actually, I say we got baptized, I think we got baptized about three times, because we went under, and then a wave knocked us over, and they got us up, and then it, it was quite, it was a thorough job, let's put it that way. It was interesting. But it was exactly the same truth that these three young men told. 
that they have totally hook, line, and sinker put their hope, their trust, their faith in God through Jesus Christ, his Son. And they're a great example to us today. And we've been in a, a series that the little cards, maybe there's one uh, near you in the pews, tell you about. We've been looking at Old Testament disciples. They've nailed their colours to the mast as disciples. And they gave great credit to those who've spiritually formed them, those who've, if you like, discipled them, those who've helped them to understand the love of God. And this series has been about learning from Old Testament disciples. And in this uh, message today, we come to the eighth message in this series, where we look at a prophet called Elisha. And each time, as we've looked at different characters, we've looked at what, those, what the words are that characterize their lives. So, for instance, Elijah, who mentored Elisha, that was determination and despair. And for Esther, a great Jewish woman who put her life on the line for God, it was opportunity and obedience. And today, it's Elisha, passion and power. But we're not just going to learn about passion and power as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ. We're going to learn from this particular Old Testament disciple, this saint, uh, and we're going to learn from two women, from two women, because we need role models who are male and female. They happen to be three guys that got baptized this morning, but there are women of faith in this church as well, and in this story, there are two women that stand out as lead characters. One of them is a very poor widow, whose husband was also a prophet in a company of prophets. And one of them was a well-to-do woman, a prosperous woman. So we've got a poor woman, a prosperous woman, and a very powerful and passionate prophet. And if we look first of all at the life of this poor woman, what the prophet Elisha shows is a passion for God and a deep compassion by helping her to experience what we might call miraculous provision miraculous provision. So there's passion for God, and there's miraculous provision for this woman. And when we look at 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, and you'll hear um, these verses again as I, I go through them, but more briefly, Ross has already read this for us. We see that God provides for this woman out of his compassion through his prophet. And the first thing that we see, see is that she had incredible need incredible need. It says in the very first verse here that she's a wife of a man from the company of the prophets, and she cries out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor's coming to take away my two boys as his slaves. In those days, there's no social security. So this poor woman has a couple of options. She either sells herself into prostitution, or her or her sons into slavery. Terrible situation still true in certain parts of the world today. And she'd built up debts, and the creditor's coming. He's going to demand that these two sons work for him for nothing as slaves. So she cries out to Elisha, and she puts herself on the line and says, please do something. And then he says something quite unusual. What have you got? Let me read verse 2 for you. He says to her, how can I help you? Tell me what you have in your house. And here's a truth for us to grab hold of. Whatever we've got, God can use it. She's got virtually nothing, but whatever we've got. So guys, when you gave your testimony this morning, I can guarantee, I can guarantee, I can't prove, but I can guarantee there's someone either on the balcony or down here and something that one of you or more than one of you said will have touched their heart. You offered to God your testimony and to us, and it's not easy to stand up here, is it? But you did a great job. 
and you just offered what you've got. And that's what this woman did. She says she's just got a single flask of olive oil, just a little oil, that's all she's got. But when we, when we give what we've got to God, God can do something quite remarkable through it, and he does. She involves the community as well. And it was great to hear from these testimonies, not only about how the youth leaders and uh, Ross is a pastor in this church, but how mums and dads and the whole church family has made a difference to these guys. Those summer camps that they've been on, there needs to be catering and feeding lots of hungry young mouths isn't an easy task. People from this community do that. They'll do that coming up August for this next camp. She involves the community here. She has not got enough jars. So what the prophet has said is go round, ask all your neighbours for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. So she goes round and she gets all the jars that she can. And then she does something else. She exercises faith. Tremendous faith. She's very obedient and she trusts God and trusts this prophet in terms of what he asks her to do. Just look at verses 4 to 6. Go inside, he says, shut the door behind you and your sons, pour oil into the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. So she leaves him, and afterwards she shuts the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her one by one, and she just kept pouring. And the more she poured, as she exercised faith, the more jars she filled. I mean, I don't know if everyone in the village, if she was in a village, had all their jars in her house by now. I don't know. But it's got to be an awful lot of jars because what we'll see happens is that she experiences an incredible abundance. Let me just read verse 7. She's gone in, she's been obedient, she's locked the door, she's taken her sons with her, there's no spectacular show for the village, she's done exactly what the man of God says, and then, it repli- and then we read here in verse 7, there's not a jar left and the oil stopped flowing. She went then and told the man of God and he said, go and sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. So she could pay all the debts and she could live presumably for the rest of her life as a widow, not on government handouts, so there's nothing wrong with that in a great society like ours. But she was dependent upon this. I mean, I want to, if you're like me, you'll want to ask, how many jars were there? I'm guessing it's every jar that her and her boys could lay hands on. And another question, this is just the way my mind works. Were there any neighbours that said, oh, can I have my jar back, please? You know? Well, even if they did, she'd say, yeah, by the way, it's now full of oil. If you want to give me a little something towards it, that would be great. Or she could even sell the oil in their jar, give them their jar back, and buy lots more jars with the other ones if she wanted to. The point is, something quite remarkable, a miracle happened here. She paid the debts. She had plenty left over. And it was only limited by the number of jars. And that that makes me think this. How open are we to God? How willing are we to be filled Oil is a sign and a symbol in Scripture of God's presence, His Holy Spirit, God's very personal presence. These three guys today, you'll have noticed, were baptised in the name of one God, just one God, Father in heaven, Son who came to earth, died, was crucified, resurrected and ascended to heaven, and Holy Spirit who lives in all three of them. My prayer was very, very simple. When I prayed for that great young man after hearing his dad speak those words over him, 
I just simply prayed for Ben that God would fill him completely with his Holy Spirit. And, and there's a symbolism here of being filled with the very presence, the powerful presence of God. I wonder how, how open are you? Maybe you've come here today and it's different, it's unusual. Clearly, a lot of people have seen uh, baptisms by immersion before. Uh, but, but I think God knows every... Well, I know God knows every man and woman here. And I think God wants me to ask that question. How open are we? I'm speaking to us whether we're Christians or non-Christians. Anyway, the, the wonderful thing is God has compassion, not just for widows, but for every man, every woman, and every young person in this building. And Elijah, we're told in the Bible, has 18 encounters with poor people. God has a passion for poor people. One of the testimonies said, I saw how my parents loved people who didn't have very much poor people. And God has a passion for all people. But for poor people who are in need, like this poor woman, he shows his compassion, even as Elisha showed his passion for God. God pours out his compassion. But it's not just poor people. God loves rich people too. And they can be poor in different ways. We can have all the things we need and still be poor in spirit, or poor in relationships, or being lonely, or lacking in love. I read in my newspaper yesterday the staggering statistics of how many people in the UK, and that means there'll be a lot of you here, so I hope this doesn't make you uncomfortable, who are struggling with issues in their life, so they need medical help. They need antidepressants. There'll be some of you here. Let, let, let's line up with that. If anybody wants prayer for that, let's pray for you, the power and presence of God, to come and help you in that dark place. But now the figures for teenagers is astronomical. Just look at the, the stats from the, the media this last week, and it's absolutely staggering, because even well-to-do people with lots of material things can have a poverty of spirit, can have a sadness, a darkness that they struggle to deal with. And again, we see compassion and power at work. In fact, in a, another miraculous way, we see a loving resurrection. And this woman, this well-to-do woman, it says in verse 8, she's got a need. And it's even before the, the son that she's given by God, by his grace, is, is born. She's desperately longing for the child she couldn't have. But let's look a little bit at her life. In, from verses 8 to 13, we see that she's got a gift of hospitality. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman, so a prosperous woman was there, who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who comes, often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp for him so he can stay here whenever he comes to us. And then one day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and he lay down there and he said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite woman. So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, to, to him tell her, you've gone to all this trouble for us, now what can be done for you? And she tells him that her husband's old and she hasn't got a child. Now there's a great stigma in those days of being childless. We now have amazing medical help that people can get and still it's a struggle and it's difficult and it's painful and again I might be touching on something for some of you here but let me tell you a story because when this prophet says to this woman I tell you before a year's time you will hold a child in your arms that seems an outlandish thing to say but he's received this assurance from God that God's going to bless her 
Now, I was in uh, Lagos, a city in Nigeria, in Africa, with a friend of mine called Ian, and we'd gone to visit a missionary uh, uh, over there, and we, we took in a conference. I was speaker at an international conference in Lagos um, in Nigeria before we went on to Kenya to see this missionary as part of our church. And when we were there at this uh, international conference, on one of the evenings there was a, uh, what you'd call a marriage enrichment evening where people celebrated marriage. And just as it is in Nigeria, so it was in these days that to be without a child in that country brings with it, sadly, a certain amount of shame. And I was praying with my friend Ian for this couple who'd come up to us and said, we've been told that we cannot have children. We have tried, we've done everything with our power and within the power of medicine, and we've been told that we cannot have children. And I don't make a habit of this, but I was filled with faith, and I felt a sense that God was speaking to me, just as he must have spoken to Elisha there. And I said, you will have a child before this conference reconvenes next year. And then I went back to, um, uh, to Andover, where I was a pastor at that time, with my friend Ian, and I told the whole church they'd better get praying because I'd made this kind of pronouncement. <laughs> Guys, you've got to pray as hard as you can. And it was amazing because within a matter, within a matter of just a, a couple of months of being back from that conference, this woman had fallen pregnant. And the church rejoiced, and I told them, keep on praying, keep on praying, keep on praying. And then that couple uh, came to visit the church. Were you there, Ross, at the time? I can't remember. They came to visit the church. They, they came and bought robes for Ian and his wife, Anne, and they bought African robes for me and my, my wife, Marilyn. You don't want to know what I look like in African robes, but African robes are wonderful, but that just doesn't do a Yorkshireman justice, I can tell you that much. So, but they, they came because they wanted to bring this child and give glory to God, and thank the church for praying, and thank myself and Ian for praying. And at the beginning of the service, I said to this father, this proud father, just as those three dads were so proud today when they baptized their sons, and no doubt the, the mums as well. But th this father, I said, would you open the service in prayer for us? And he nodded, he was delighted. And I whispered in his ear, will you pray with the passion of an African, but the brevity of an Englishman? He completely ignored me, and 15 minutes later, we were still celebrating the gift of God to this man. God still works miracles. And a gift of hospitality was rewarded, in a sense, by a gift of a son. It wasn't a deal, it wasn't a bargain, but this woman holds this child in her hand. This child who would be a security when her husband dies, if she's still alive. The one who would continue the family line. And we're told in Galatians chapter 6 and verses 7 to 8 in the Bible that in a sense what we sow, we reap. This isn't about bargaining with God, but it says in Galatians chapter 6 verses 7 to 8, don't be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man or a woman reap what they sow. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So what you sow, you reap. Now that's become part of our, of our language and our culture. You reap what you sow. Many people say it, they don't know they're quoting the Bible. She gets the gift of a son, but the tragedy happens. The son has got clearly some problem in his head. He goes to his father and he dies. There's no doubt in the text that this son is dead. This isn't a resuscitation by Elisha lying upon his body and his body warming up. This is a full-blown gift of resurrection. It's a gift of absolute compassion. 
And the woman uh, shows remarkable faith, just like the the woman, the poor woman who kept pouring the oil and kept filling the jars and she had amazing faith and she kept going. This woman could have easily said, oh, so you're supposed to be a loving, compassionate God, are you? Well, you gave me a son, but now you've taken him away. That would be understandable, wouldn't it? Haven't many of us said stuff like that? If you're God and you're loving, why did that happen? That's understandable. The $64 million question is if God is all-loving and all-powerful, why does bad stuff happen to good people? And it's not satisfying even to hear the most profound theological response to that is that the God who is loving, the God who is compassionate, has given us free will, and much of the problem with the world can be explained by how human beings exercise free will in unloving ways. Just the top ten people, rich people in, richest people in the world could end world famine tomorrow. Let's just take that one. And then some of the things that have broken your heart were done or said by people who exercised their free will to say something or do something unloving, cruel, and hurtful. Now that doesn't get God off the hook, but then there's another reason. It's as if when God made a perfect paradise, whether you take the story of Adam and Eve literally as I do, or you take it as symbolism, what happens is it's as if a spanner was thrown in the works of a delicate machine and something called sin came into the world and it wrecked the relationship between man and God and it wrecked the world. So God never planned pathogens. He never planned cancer. He never planned famine. He never planned earthquake and storm and all of these disasters. That's part of what happened when evil came into the world through an agent of evil called the evil one. And I think he was being referred to when someone said they were frightened and had nightmares until they put their trust in God. I was a scientist by background when I was an atheist My bachelor's degree was in zoology with psychology. When I studied at master's level, I discussed and and researched the whole area of evil and the power of evil spirits. They exist, they're real. You don't have to explain that to anyone in Africa. But this gift of resurrection shows that God is supreme and sovereign over life, over death. And this woman had the faith not to say, you cannot be loving, you cannot be all-powerful, you let my son die. No, what she says is, you are the one who gave me this son, you can give me back this son. Having had a stillborn baby, my wife had a stillborn baby, full term. You think lightning will never strike twice, but having carried a baby for nine months and being told the baby was dead three weeks before she brought that baby into this world. I'll never forget the screams and I'll never forget the sadness we felt. And then that's followed by a miscarriage. When uh, you've then had another child and the child's okay, you think, right, we're out of the woods, this is okay. And then when your wife is full term again with a child that she's carrying and it's almost deja vu and the same thing happens and the baby stops moving in her womb and you go to the hospital and you don't tell a living soul but you're terrified and you drop everything and drive straight up there and the nurse, who's an experienced nurse, gets your notes and she gets a sonic monitor on your wife's abdomen and she can't find a heartbeat and she says, oh, 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 oh don't, don't, don't worry, it's probably just a machine. It was working okay this morning but it's just a machine and you read people well. You know what she's saying is there's a big problem here. What you're less likely to do when the nurse goes out of the room and it seems like forever but you've looked up at the clock and it's probably only 20 minutes 
is if you're like me, you find yourself praying one of the most unusual prayers that an atheist could ever pray. I prayed for that baby. God, if this baby is dead, bring it back to life. And you might say it's a coincidence. And you might even be right, actually. But when the nurse came back with the other machine and put it on my wife's abdomen, there was a heartbeat straight away. That baby is now Adam. He's about 34 years old, and he's living in Geneva. Uh, and uh, he's doing well. But what you can't write off, and I couldn't write off as a coincidence, a week later when I'd written it all off as an emotional experience, and I don't believe in a God, and that was just an emotional reaction, and it's just a coincidence, it was obviously the machine. When my young Christian uh, uh, assistant in the boarding house I was a teacher at, and in the psychology and biology departments where we both taught A-level, when he came back and took me aside and said, are you okay? Is your wife okay? Is the baby okay? And I said, what are you getting at, Ian? He said, well, it's a bit embarrassing. I said, well, just go on. He said, well, I don't want to push my faith at you. I said, no, you don't do that, but just tell me what's this about. He said, well, I had a burden for you last Wednesday. I said, what's a burden? He said, I just felt I had to pray for you. I said, what were you doing? He says, it, it, it was the afternoon. It got my attention now because it was the previous Wednesday afternoon. He said, uh, I was at my mother's house down in Surrey. I'm in Scarborough, in Yorkshire, in, in the hospital there. And he said, I knelt by the bed and prayed for 20 minutes. I said, what time was that? And the time he knelt by the bed was the time that nurse went out the room. Now, a hole went in my atheism at that moment. I didn't tell him. You might think at that stage I fell to my knees and became a Christian. No, I didn't. God was so patient with me. And God is compassionate and patient with all of us. But I want to tell you that this was a gift of resurrection to this woman who trusted in him the way that that young man knelt by his bed until the burden went that the baby was okay. I don't know what happens. I'll find out one day, but it doesn't matter in a sense. Because there's a gift of resurrection that is offered to everyone here today. There's a gift of new life that's offered to everyone here today. And what God doesn't want to do is resuscitate some people. God doesn't want to say, well, your life's not that good, I'll, make, I'll warm it up a bit. I'll make it a bit better. No, God wants the old life to go, just like those three guys when they went under the water, that's representing that they died to their old life in Christ. It's like Jesus being crucified. When they came up out of the water, it's like being resurrected to a new life. They all said it. They put their hope and their trust entirely in Jesus, who told his disciples he was going to be crucified and murdered, but three days later, he would be alive again. John was close enough. The rest were terrified, and they fled. The Bible is such an honest book, it records it. But John was there with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and other women, standing close enough to hear Jesus say several things, including, it's finished. Not I'm finished, no, it's finished. The work I came to do is finished. I am dying on this cross in the place of anyone who'll put their trust in me because I'm dying their death. You see, he died my death for all the stuff that would be a barrier between me and God. The thing that the final testimony described as sin. And we're all corrupted by that. We're all, whatever killed that young man, the Bible says that this thing that divides us between divides us from God, this thing called sin, it needs to be dealt with. Otherwise, sadly, we'll be separated from him for eternity. But if it's dealt with, 
and we trust in him, we exercise our free will to follow him, we will be dead to the old life, live a new life, and we will have eternal life. The greatest gift anyone could have. The gift of the resurrection is now eternal life. Just listen to what Jesus said at the tomb, not of another woman. He was talking to two women, one called Mary and one called Martha. But he stands at a tomb of a friend called Lazarus who has been dead for three or four days. No doubt he's in a tomb. He's bound up. And Jesus tells these women to still trust in him. Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Because Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. She says, oh yeah, I know a day's coming. You see, there is a day that's coming when all the human beings that have ever lived, and all those who are still alive, when Jesus comes back, this is what Christians believe, there'll be a great day of resurrection and a great day of judgment where we will know the good and the bad and the ugly about my life and your life and everyone else's life. That day will come for all human beings. So she kind of, Martha, gets that, but Jesus says, no. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he or she dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Guys, you who were baptized today, you may taste what the Bible describes as a first death. I hope that's not anytime soon, guys. I hope you live a long, 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 long life. But I want to tell you, when your day does come, because it will come for everyone in this room, all of us, one day, that day will come when life ends. Your life won't because you've got eternal life, because you've got resurrection life, which was demonstrated and symbolized when you came up out of that water. So here's the final question that I have. This Jesus himself worked some of the greatest miracles that have ever been seen. He raised the dead, like Lazarus, who came shuffling out of the tomb after the stone was rolled away. It's been said that if Jesus hadn't called him by name, the whole graveyard would have emptied. Okay? Lazarus came out and Jesus said, now take the grave clothes off him. Lazarus would die again. He'd go to be with his maker. But for those of us who put their trust in this Jesus, it's not just pie in the sky when you die, this stuff. It's cake on a plate before it's too late. It's having a better life in this life, not just a resuscitation life, but a resurrection life and a quality of eternal life and then to know that your, your existence is secure for eternity. That's the best offer anyone's going to get. So here's my question. Will you be like that first woman? Will you just offer what you've got to God? She offered what? A little oil. She offered a jar. Actually, she offered much more. She offered her trust and her faith. Will you be like the second woman who trusted in God even when he'd given the son she longed for? He seems to have taken the son away he kept, she kept trusting that this God could do something amazing. Will you take faith now, even if it's as small as a mustard seed, as small as the amount of oil that that, that uh, widow had left, and will you use that to choose to put your trust in God? Maybe you've heard too much too soon. Well, you can ask questions. You can talk to these three young guys. You can... Look at the next time we run an Alpha course or a Christianity Explored course where with food, 
You can gather with others and ask questions, even the most challenging questions. But what I would ask you to do and urge you to do this morning, if you are ready to say, yeah, I've heard enough, I'm in. And talk to Ross, talk to me, talk to one of the guys who got baptized, talk to Zoe. Find someone who you know is a believer and tell them, you're in, you're ready, you've heard enough. But if there's more that you want to ask, don't leave it here and then in a few days, like I did after that baby, the heart had stopped beating and a a matter of days later, I've just forgotten it. Don't do that. Let's pray together. Let's get ask the band to come back. Father, I thank you for every man, every woman, every young person, every child that's in this building. The truth is, Father, your heart is full of compassion as it was for that widow and as it was for that well-to-do woman who longed for a child. Your heart is full of compassion for every single human being here. Whatever our age, whatever our colour, whatever our culture, whatever our socioeconomic standing, there's not a man, a woman, a young person or a child in this building that you don't love. And you know us, Lord. You know our hopes, you know our fears, you know our best moments, you know our worst moments. And you so love this world and every person in it that you sent your one and only Son that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life, resurrection life. So, Father, I want to pray that you stir the hearts of those who are gathered here. I pray that as you're stirring hearts, people will understand something different is happening. This isn't the words of a guy at the front. This is something touching minds and hearts that is to do with your Holy Spirit present here now. And, Father, I pray you'd help people to understand, to trust, to exercise faith with the free will that you've given them. I pray a blessing upon everyone who's present. Pray that at the very least, everyone here who has not yet put their trust in Jesus will at least consider him a little further. And I pray these things because you love and care for everyone that's gathered. So I pray these things now, Father God, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and ask that by the power and presence of your Spirit, you'd be at work in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.